0: welcome to making of a historian the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to uh write a dissertation i guess uh get a job probably not at this point uh raise a kid and survive uh the pandemic. Um, today I'm really happy to be joined by Dr. Tom Almoroth Williams uh, to talk about his uh, book, City of Beasts, which is uh, now out in a very reasonably priced paperback. Um, you can find uh, uh, Dr. Almoroth Williams' website at cityofbeastslondon.com info, um, That's cityofbeastslondon.info. Um, and you can find us Twitter at Tom Almeroth W on Twitter. I'll drop all of those links in the show notes. Get the book. It's really interesting. Um, so, uh, uh, Tom, your 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 book is about Georgian London, which is something that we've talked about on this podcast a lot because I'm also a historian of 18th century London. And I was really surprised when I read the book because it didn't look like the London that I've read about or written about. So so tell me if I was just like dropped into 18th century London, like what does your book tell me like I would – see like what would we, what would it be like to walk down the streets
1: great well thank you first of all brendan for having me uh, i'm calling you from a slightly rainy cambridge which is helping to put me in the the mood somewhat um, so i mean you you said what it, what would it be like to to walk through georgian london and it's and it's uh, it's useful that you said walk because one of the Um, things that amazed European and American visitors to London was that despite its size and busyness um, and danger, London remained a city of walkers. Um, And although the city had one of the most sophisticated systems for hackney carriages and and, uh, ways for elite people to get about, actually even very wealthy and respectable people spent most of their time walking through the city. It was a big part of the recreational life of the of the city, um, but also an essential way to get about. Um, but as you're entering the city and, and, and walking through it, um, I mean, if you're arriving as a, as a 21st century tourist, you're going to, uh be shocked by the intensity of the of the horse traffic uh for a start and hmm. um, by the early 1800s you've got at least 30,000 um draft horses working in the city uh, and you need to double that if you want to include um all of the polite carriage horses that are drawing people around in the expensive um west end
0: i i have a question about horses and this is going to sound i mean I'm going to reveal how urban my, my upbringing was how big's a horse, like kind of in my imagination, I imagine it like about as big as a person, but, but, I think, like I think, they vary. So, how big were these yes, horses? Yes, I mean there is
1: some variability. I mean the the uh, I, I, the terminology might be slightly different in America, but the 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 the, the, the kind of uh, we call them Shire horses that you get in the 19th century and early 20th century. That um, famously, the kind of uh, big breweries in America still use them for kind of uh, marketing and advertising and stuff. So they're a bit bigger than your biggest 18th century horse, but we're still sort of talking. 14-15 hands to use the equestrian um, so um, slightly higher um, than, than quite a few Georgian Londoners um, I suppose in a way more interesting than their their height is their bulk and strength and some of the industrial horses that, that brewers for example, that's, they're the biggest industrialists in Georgian London they were specifically buying these uh, sort of quite round chested um, large bulky horses that needed to be very strong, big bones, big muscles to deal with the jolting that they were encountering as they were pulling these very heavy loads on uh, very dangerous, slippery cobbles. Um, and these brewers would still end up working those animals to death in a matter of years um, because it was such a, t- a, t- a tough working environment. So, I mean, as a modern visitor to the city, particularly if you're not a horsey person, uh, if you haven't grown up on a farm, I think you would find the experience of crossing the road Um, Pretty intimidating. Uh, The newspapers throughout the Georgian period, throughout the 18th and early 19th century, are absolutely full of spine chilling, um, fatal accidents involving horses kicking people Hmm. in the chest, uh, people being crushed, children playing in the street, being run over or trampled on, people being bitten by horses in the street. So you need to have your wits about you in this city. Um, And of course, Horses is is only one element of the animal life that you're going to face on on the so, streets.
0: So as as we were as as we would be walking through the streets of Georgian London, one thing that we'd have to be doing is we'd have to be paying attention to all of the horses, just in the same way as right now we have to like pay attention to the cars on the road. Right? Am I get? And it's if yeah. we ignore them, we would get badly hurt.
1: Yeah, exactly right. I mean I think it's I mean one thing that that I was really keen on in the book is that it's it's not just telling the story of animals, it's telling the story of animals of interactions, relationships between people and animals, between all the different trades and activities and animals. Um, so, so this kind of immersive feel, panoramic, immersive feel that I was trying to to get across. So, when you're walking through the streets, you've got the din of all of these trades. You've got um, you've got all the tradesmen hammering and chipping you've got machines grinding um you've got steam engines um particularly in the in the in the second half of the period um and then you've got all of this animal traffic you've got street vendors loudly crying their wares in the street um you've got people coming out of pubs and all of the noise of that you've got dogs barking and um, you've got the sound of um of livestock droves in in the street um so it's really overwhelming Wait, livestock,
0: like cows
1: yeah, I mean so this is one of the um one one of, in a way even more shocking I think than 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 the horses that it would have been impossible to walk through the streets of Georgian London at pretty much any point of any day without encountering um cattle, um often long horned cattle, so pretty dangerous. Um but also sheep pigs um in the part of england that i live in now east anglia um and a lot of the time particularly in the in the lead up to christmas they were driving live um geese all the way from uh, all the way from east anglia um you know we're talking kind of 100 miles here all the way down into into london to be sold
0: um Wait, wait! So, so people would drive herds of geese hundreds of miles in the middle of winter to downtown London, so that people could have geese for Christmas dinner.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, these poor geese don't actually don't actually make it into my book, but they had a sort of a tar put on their feet so that they so that they actually had feet by the time they got to London. Um, I mean, some some were carted in, but lots of them were walked, um, and. C- cattle from as far away as the highlands of Scotland were driven all the way into London with pauses along the way when they would when they would graze. Um, so you, you've just you've got cattle and sheep coming from every part of, um, of, of, of England and Scotland and Wales being driven into the, the city. Um, the city also has its resident herds of um, dairy cows, um, probably something like 10,000 of those. Um, but in, t- in terms of the, the cattle for meat and the sheep, we're talking um, about, uh, by the early 1800s, about 30,000 cattle and sheep being driven into the city every
0: single week. Wait, wait, every week, every week, 30,000 30, 000- cattle driven into the city what what happened to them so they were they were
1: initially driven into the suburbs and there were um, a number of uh, holding pens um, for these animals to rest after the final leg of this journey towards the city and at this point the you have sort of country drovers and then town drovers and there would be a swap over and the idea was that the country drovers would say to the town drovers look, mate, you need to watch out for this cow here, the one with the really long horns, because he's, he's more skittish than the rest, and he might cause you trouble when you get into the busy bit of town. Um, and then very, very early in the morning at the crack of dawn, um, the town drovers would take these animals um, in, into the centre of the city. And this was one of the really bizarre things about London is that unlike pretty much every other city in Europe and North America. London does not push its livestock market out of town. The city grows around it. So in the the medieval period, Smithfield, this we think comes from um, the word for smooth field. Um, and and this was outside of the of the city walls. But the city grows around it until eventually it's at the at the heart of so much activity of pubs, of banks, um, of the carting trade, the wagon trade, um, until by the early nineteenth century, um it's it's just in an impossible situation. And the trade is so enormously valuable i mean historians of georgia london and britain have been so obsessed with the trade in exotic imported goods like sugar Um, that they've really forgotten about tea coffee
0: yeah it's all i talk about when i talk about people consuming in georgian london i talk about people drinking coffee in coffee houses i talk about people drinking tea at home i talk sometimes i talk about beer but i've never talked about meat i mean don't don't get me wrong these are these are fascinating topics but i
1: i I can't quite put my finger on it why they've been neglected perhaps perhaps for some some reason because because smithfield market itself you know doesn't produce a kind of beautiful glitzy building or you know uh, like you would get in a coffee house or an assembly rooms perhaps it's been neglected perhaps it just doesn't fit this this wider debate that we're having about sociability or or, you know the beautiful architecture that comes out this period Um, but it's been forgotten and uh, or at least neglected but the financial significance is just huge uh, and the impact on the lives of all Londoners, and of course, on the rest of people living in the country, is is enormous. Um, you know, if you're if you're a farmer in Scotland, you're worrying about whether the cattle that you're producing are fit for Smithfield, mm. and and agricultural books from the period mm. would often refer to that. You know, whether the meat was acceptable to the to the uh, the sellers um, in Smithfield and to the butchers of London.
0: Well, let's, let's just, let's just get those cattle from Smithfield to their eventual fate. So what, what, what exactly happens to them? So they're, they're all crowded in by, by sort of uh
1: five o'clock in the morning, they're all crowded into, uh, into the Smithfield market itself. Um, which you'd imagine it just looked like a sea of, of mammalian life, um, by the early morning. Um, and, um, By a very complex system, and these animals would have been sold uh, and then would have been taken out of the market. Now, lots of these animals would have been slaughtered and then and there in the slaughterhouses that surrounded the marketplace itself. These were pretty grim places, lots of them were in basements, and so the animals would have been. Uh, led down into them, or just hurled down into them. Uh, sheep were often just sort of bundled down trapdoors to be slaughtered. Um, so, um, but then lots of the other animals, and this is this is where the impact of Smithfield in a way gets even worse. So. At, it, at just the moment when lots of working Londoners are heading off to their workshops their places of work um, in the early morning, it's this exact moment every Monday and every Friday um, that the livestock are driven out of Smithfield and then driven all the way across the city to various um, retail markets. Um, and these stretch all the way to St. James's in, in the West End. Uh, and then the animals would then be slaughtered um, in similar sort of basement sites in all of these venues. So pretty much every major artery of the city um he's going to be choked up with um, with with sheep and cattle um, at these times, uh, potentially for, for a couple of hours per day. So even very wealthy West End Londoners. Um, if they go for an early morning shop, they might still get unlucky and encounter um, some of some of these droves as they're going into Bond Street to buy their fancy jewellery or clothes. Um, so it really touches the lives of everyone in London. Of course, it touches on the lives of the poor, you know, the the the, uh, the homeless, the people selling their wares in the street. It affects them most. Um, but if you live in Georgian London. You know
0: livestock really well, whether you like it or not. So the, the 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 picture that I got from your book that just blew me away was of London as kind of a, a an almost perpetual animal traffic jam, and not just cows and horses, but also pigs. Uh, you said geese, um, dogs. That that, that 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 the amount of animal flesh around you as a Londoner. Uh, was just a t- immense. Like, like when I think of London, when I talk about London, I've, I've I've talked about it as like the world's first modern city or something like that. I, I feel a little embarrassed calling it that, but but that's how I've talked about it. And it it kind of it it makes me rethink that characterization of London as the world's first modern city. To think of how much livestock, how much live animal stuff was around you at that time. Yeah, I mean, I think it's. I, th- I suppose we're we're now trapped in this
1: in this idea of what a modern city is. And it and sometimes when I, I give public talks and I and you know, 70 and 80-year-old um born and bred Londoners come up to me and they say they just about remember in the sort of nineteen fifties and sixties seeing rag and bone men with their horses. They they were just seeing the end of this. Some people would have still seen livestock um around the new site when in in 1855 the livestock trade was finally moved out to the suburbs to islington of course it's not remotely suburban now it's fully urbanized but um so i suppose my generation now it just feels completely disconnected, it, living in cities in the West, that is, feel completely disconnected from the idea of of a city that has such a large and crucial animal population.
0: Like When I was raising, my, my, I have a six-month-old, and about when she was like two or three months, I realized that she'd never seen an animal, that she'd only seen people reading a book. Uh, and there was a picture of a dog in it and she got a little scared and I was like, Oh, she's never seen something that's not a human being. And that's a deeply weird experience for a person to not know anything but humans.
1: Yeah. I mean, exactly. And there are, you know, there was a, we, we have a, there's an academic at Cambridge who has produced a book called the lost words for children. There was a big campaign here to get this into primary schools in the UK uh, and, and it, and And it flags and makes very beautiful with illustration. These these words from the natural world that kids in Britain have stopped using partly because these animals are rarer, but also because they're just less exposed um, to them. So some of them are animal names, some of them were plants, et cetera. Um, So, I mean, I suppose that was something I was doing with the book quite a lot was trying to trying to imagine, although the book is not particularly about attitudes to animals, which has been covered by lots of people, as I was Focusing on these tangible interactions, sort of, I, I call it dung, bespattered interactions between people and animals. I was mm-hmm. trying to think, you know, what impact this might have on the way people felt about animals, because I've always felt very uncomfortable about how people in the 21st century comfortably assume that our attitudes are so much more humane and enlightened now than they were in the 18th century. And people point to examples of cruelty without actually thinking about the kind of experiences that might've created them. Um, and so I, that, that's the thing yeah. I really hope that comes out from the book that, you know, once you understand, you know, how difficult, dangerous, unpleasant life could be in Georgian London. And when you start looking for Nuances in the way that people are treating animals, um, and understanding animal behaviour. I mean that, that's probably an unusual thing in the book. Is I actually read some animal behavioural science and tried to um, use that to explore um, individual acts um, in relationships between animals and people. So you know, why does the Smithfield drover in William Hogarth's second stage of cruelty? Why is he beating the sheep's head? Uh, until he kills it. You know, is it, Why? Is it as, as Hogarth may or may not have wanted to lead us to believe, and as historians have led us to believe, because this man is working class and has been working with animals too long and perhaps was just born evil, um, is he just doing this out of sheer brutality? Or maybe we should think about what that man's life was like and how... How is that sheep behaving? This is not to cast blame on the sheep, but, um, you know, if you're a poverty-stricken Smithfield drover, absolutely exhausted, you've got a kid dying of an illness at home and you're struggling to make ends meet and it's coming to the end of the working day and your sheep start straying from the drove and you you lose it, then perhaps we need to work a bit harder to understand um, the motivations
0: and behavior of those people as well as the animals. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about uh, one aspect of animals in the 18th century that you touch upon that, 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 uh, explore some of the themes that we've been talking about this podcast, which is animal labor and how animals and people cooperated together to do uh, a, a lot of the things that that we usually think of as as, as industrial processes. Um, we, I taught a class and work and play in the Industrial Revolution last semester, and one of the things we read was uh, Raphael Samuel about uh, uh, how much you know actual muscle labor. Was used even in the uh, height of the industrial revolution to do a lot of industrial processes, and I see some of the stuff in your book is kind of doing that for the 18th century and animals. You show a lot of things that that a lot of industrial processes in London that animals were really crucial for. So tell, let's talk a little bit about that. What 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 sort of things to uh, were you surprised? I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the Raphael Samuel study because that was that was influential for me at a
1: kind of crucial stage of doing the research for, for that. Um, and yeah. I mean, in many ways, the the work in the book on the industrial revolution is is my favourite um, aspect of it, and is very much at the at the core. And I um, I really divide it in terms of horse work into um, two big aspects. So, on the one hand, mill horses, so horses powering machinery for industry, and then uh, draft horses. Um, uh, and I focus more on uh, more on uh, haulage work. So. Pulling goods through the city as opposed to passenger transport which has had a bit more attention um and i mean it's strange there are some really um characterful animals in the book but um in a way mill horses are my favorite animals in the entire book um none of them are named Uh, very few of the animals actually in the book um were there any um, evidence of their names. But uh, with mill horses, they almost certainly weren't given names. Um, these were cheap animals to buy. They were working animals at the end of their lives. Um, if they weren't blind when they started working um, in the factories and the mills, then they were by the end. Um mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they had pretty grim lives. They just locked away in these, um, in these engine rooms, plodding round, um, a mill
0: wheel, um, for hours on end. Um, and- wait, wait, so they're, they're kind of like a, a, they're doing like a treadmill thing. Like they're just walking around in a circle. Yeah. So
1: there's, their harness is attached to a, a horizontal beam, which is then attached, attached to a, a vertical beam. Um, and then there are various types of mill. I mean, most of the horse uh, mill horses in London are being used for grinding raw materials. Um, some are also being used for pumping uh, water. Um, but so you have got—I mean, this technology goes right back. To-
0: Wait, were, were these were these common? Like like you you say grinding and pumping like that doesn't. I don't know where the grinding and pumping shops are today. Like why. <laughs> Were there like two or three of them or like what was this? Why do people need mills? Sure. I mean, it's it's slightly
1: difficult to pin down exactly how many there are. I mean, I I sort of um, collected together a a couple of dozen of these spread across the city at various times um, in the period. Um, But they're working for. And um, there are almost certainly many more than that, um, but the evidence is sort of limited for how many. Um, but they're working in the some of the crucial industries. So brewing is the the most um the biggest capital industry in in, in the city. Um and they are um grinding um mm-hmm grinding malt, and they are uh, pumping water through the brewery. Um, And they're doing that until 1784 when Bolton and Watt um, adapt their steam engine to create a sun and planet type engine. Um, And that then starts... Gradually to take over the work of these mill horses, but um, the brewer's mill horse had already <laughs> revolutionised the brewing industry. It already turned brewing into a mass production industry before, long before um, the steam engines arrived. And some um, significant brewers in London are still um, using mill horses um, in the, uh, up to sort of eighteen oh five. So they're hugely influential. Um, and yet really kind of physically modest um, animals um, living these very sort of tragic lives. Um, But they're also, um, you know, they grind um, oak bark for tanners. Tanning the production of leather was another Hmm. very significant industry, um, even in the 18th century. Um, They are pugging clay. Um, Pugging might not be a word familiar. It's uh, sort of mixing... um, brick earth um, clay, which um, was in rich supply, particularly in the northern suburbs of London. So these pug mills are being used by brickmakers. And you've got this fascinating interaction between the mill horses, um, women and children and men all working together, often in family groups to to create bricks, um, a really tough trade to be involved in. and and ver- various other trades. I mean, my I my one of my favourite industries in the entire book is colour making, um, or we would call it paint man colour making. They, they were calling colour making rather than paint manufacture because um, throughout the Georgian period, um, you would tend to buy your pigment powder and then you would mix it separately with oil Hmm. Um, so you've got um some quite sophisticated arrangements with a mill horse in the middle or you know a team of four mill horses and they might be powering um eight grinding eight sets of grinding stones at the same time to produce an increasing array of newly invented colors um house painting the the diy trade uh of of the 18th century um it, it, it all it all sort of kicks off in the second half of the 18th century um, with with the Adam brothers and neoclassicism. So everyone wants these increasingly well, wealthy people want increasingly fancy, colorful interiors. Um, and mill horses, um, take over this work, obviously as demand increases, you need a sort of powerful, um, a power source to, to, to produce these, uh, paints,
0: uh, more economically. So, so why do you need horses? Why not just get a person to like turn a, a, a mill? Like, is it really that hard? Well, so, so initially, so
1: for the, for the artist paint trade, you have got these poor souls who are literally using their hands to power pestle and mortars, and, um, and uh, and you know, people working mills, I never, I never came across that in in my research. I think um, the eighteenth the, century. It's crucial to remember, and this is certainly the case also in the tanning trade as well, which was coming under increasing pressure. the the The, the expense of human labour is soaring quite significantly in this period in in London. So you know, part of the industrial revolution is about getting um, people away, in London at least, from some of these more menial tasks and getting them to do more skilled tasks. So having a horse-powered mill to grind the bark then allows you to... um, um, use the men that you're keeping on to do more complex tasks like checking on the bats mm-hmm. to make sure that the um the chemical solution in there is correct, you know to be working on ledgers to be dealing with other tradespeople um so Animals bring efficiency and, and cost efficiency to these to these industries and help them to go into mass
0: mass production. And how how did how did animals and people work together? In my imagination, when you're telling me about these mill horses, they're just kind of like. I mean, I don't know horses very well, but, but in my head, they're just kind of machines, like one part of the machine. But what is, was that it?
1: Well, so, I mean, it, one, I found it, it's difficult to get a sense of, um, you know, to, to have a sort of bird's eye view of what was happening in these places, but there is an amazing coroner's report following the death of a pavia, a man who was sent in to repair the floor, uh, in a silversmithing workshop in Clerkenwell. um, And they were employing a mill horse to flatten uh, silver to produce these sheets of metal, which they could then quickly cut into all kinds of shapes. So, sugar tongs, for example, I actually own a very cheap pair of mass produced sugar tongs from this factory made by the very horses that are implicated in this coroner's report, they're the same date um, I, you can tell I was getting a bit too carried away with my research when I when I bought these but, um, <laughs> um, but this, um, so you get this sense there's this report, so the, the men repairing the floor, they tried to duck under the beam of the horse mill as the horses were going round and one of them was struck on the head by the beam and then trampled to death by the horses who just carried on walking. Um, and this tells us so much, this little coroner's um, report tells us so so much because, you know, the horses carried on walking and carried on trampling over this man and, and it took a while for them to be stopped. And eventually the, uh, the stable boy arrived with a light and he stopped the horses and then they looked at the man and realised he was dead. But it's so interesting that the horses were allowed to keep walking, which just shows you that while they were supervised to make sure that they weren't being too lazy, they were also trusted to carry on doing their job. Once the mill was set in motion, they were left for a period of time. And throughout the book, there's this, I I think, interesting um, balance between um, the fact that horses at least could be Uh, trained and trusted to get on with their jobs and the efficiency that that produced was crucial in the industrial revolution and crucial to the city's prosperity but also these animals create a lot of work for a lot of people so you know the fact that the stable boy is the one who arrives to stop the horses you know he's there working on site maintaining these animals um and this really shone through when i looked at the so another very strange trade that these um mill horses were involved in was the production of water pipes uh, throughout the georgian period mm-hmm. the vast majority of london's water pipes were made with hollowed out tree trunks um and hollowing them out uh by hand was incredibly labor intensive and too expensive so from around 1740, 1750, horses had taken over this work. Um, and so they're, they're drilling with a borer through, through these trees and then the thin end of one tree would be inserted into the wide end of another. Um, and there's an amazing uh, series of uh, letters between the board of directors of, of the biggest, um, water company in London and, um, and their kind of site manager. And he admits that um, most of his mill horses have got sick with a, a virus that's prevalent in the city. Um, and he's kind of playing it cool. And he says, oh, this is a great opportunity. We can We can repair the mill that's looking a bit out of shape. Let's kind of profit mm-hmm. from the delay in production. And the directors just Flip out, you know. They are furious. Their letter back to him is kind of like, "What are you talking about? You need to hire in new horses immediately. We can't afford to stop production at all." Uh, and it just kind of emphasised how crucial these animals were, but also and um, the fact that although they are frequently worked to death, um, a lot was invested in the care of these animals, even the lowly mill horse. Um, still receive the attention of, of farriers and and veterinary surgeons um, where it was felt profitable to the company.
0: So I, I just want to point out how different this view of the Industrial Revolution is from the view that I've been talking about in this podcast for, for like three years. So the, the, the way that I've been talking about the Industrial Revolution is that there's basically guys with machines run by coal, that really happens in the the the, the midlands, the the, the kind of north of England. London isn't really a big part of the story, um, and neither is skilled labor. Really, what the big part of the story is is the replacement of capital, like big machines and cheap energy with coal for skilled labor of of, of human beings, in in only a, a fairly minor number of industrial processes, particularly like. You know, textile manufacturing and metallurgy, but here is a really different story. It's the same time period that happens in London and you have not only power coming from animals, not fossil fuels. But you have this animal labor is skilled labor in in a way, not super skilled, but the the you can't just replace the mill horses with random horses that he got off the street because the horses seem to need to know how to work with people, right? Like they they there's there's a certain amount of 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 horse knowledge, like knowledge on the part of horses that's that's essential to a number of industries uh that that you're talking about. And that's just so different from the story that I've been telling yeah. all of my listeners and myself for for uh uh, the entire length of this podcast
1: yeah i mean it's certainly true that london has been neglected as a hub of the industrial revolution uh i'm not the first to point that out but we're few and far between historians of the industrial revolution focusing on on london and 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 a big reason for that is people have been um most interested in um, coal-fueled steam engines uh, and in uh, water wheels and to a lesser extent in windmills uh london was terrible at ha- harnessing the power of its river because the thames is tidal very deep and too rapid for most mills it did have one set of water wheels um on london bridge and it did also have some in southwark but they weren't particularly significant um, And it was also terrible at harnessing the power of the wind uh, because it was in a sort of in in a bowl. Uh, So there were some windmills further out, but not close. So I think historic and then and then, as you say, you know, it's the the Midlands that's been associated with harnessing steam power. I mean, one thing I'm very clear about in the book is that. Uh, just because I'm focusing on animals does not mean that I'm suggesting that London didn't adopt steam engines. It's also been overlooked that London was just as fast and just as ambitious at investing in steam power as more celebrated parts of, of, of Britain for the Industrial Revolution were. Um, but uh, until 1784, steam power wasn't useful uh, to most uh, to, in, to most manufacturers because um, it was able to pump water but not to turn machinery, um, and the scales of production yeah. that are happening in Georgian London meant that for many um, for many manufacturers. Um, They could carry on for for decades using their horse mills. They didn't need to make that next step up to an expensive steam engine. And the horse was performing that role um, really well. Of course, most of them did eventually um, turn turn to steam. But even brewers, the leading um, industrialists, um, even they do this quite nervously and for some of them it takes 10 or more years to make that transition and sometimes they sell all but two of their mill horses being cautious and then something goes wrong with the steam engines installation and it then they buy back the horses and then it takes them another year to sell them off um so yes you know the mill horses do l- lose out in one way um they're, they're victims of their own um success in a way um, but uh but that they are just crucial and yes it has been it has has been
0: o- overlooked well let's let's talk about another uh story that 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 uh, I've been talking about in 18th century London, which is we we call it sociability. Um, my research is on clubs and societies, and one of the big stories that I tell is that in cities in Britain over the 18th century, there were a number of new ways to socialize. There were clubs where you could go and hang out with people who weren't your neighbors and and talk about specialized things. But there were also like assembly halls where you could go and dance, and and new kinds of pubs and new parks, and there were there were all. All these new spaces of association that, that gave people a novel form of, of, of social life. And in my own research, when I study this, I, 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 sometimes see, uh, things like jockey clubs and horse races and hunts, and I just kind of ignore them. But in, you, you talk about, you know, kind of like an animal sociability in London in the 18th century. Tell me about what I'm missing by just focusing on, you know, indoor activities
1: so uh, there are sort of various things that have led historians into into the way they look at recreation in the city so to take the city's sort of wealthiest people it's it's elite who who split uh, their their year into the season the london season um and then uh so so, so they're in uh in London in that period. And then they go off to their country estates for the other half of the year. And the perception that historians have have gone with is that, you know, when they're in the country, they're doing all these rural things, horse racing, getting muddy, hunting, Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, getting getting the the air blowing through their, their their hair and then when they come into uh into london it's it's all just an endless exhausting round of visits and dinners and gambling and assembly rooms and concerts and going to the theater and, and all of this and of course all of these activities you know to some extent this is true you know hunting was huge when people were on their estates um and people did love going to assembly rooms um but because of this focus, people have forgotten on some of the other most um, most popular recreational sites for the city's wealthy. So um, Hyde Park was the most famous riding venue in Europe. Wait, wait,
0: wait! wait. People went on ri- riding in Hyde Park when, when I've when I've read about all these all these parks. I just kind of imagine people having picnics <laughs> and like walking, promenading.
1: I mean, so, so Hyde Park is very much, uh, so the, the, the kings, kings of England had had, had um, a sort of a riding route um, through, through Hyde, Hyde Park. Um, and as the park was gradually transformed, um, it was made more and more into a public riding venue from the 17th century. Um, And so you've you've got this um, you've got a kind of a straight um, riding path um, for for riding on horseback, which is known as Rotten Row. Um, And so that's very famous uh, in the city. And it's still still called that today. Um, And then you've got carriage drives um, and these increase throughout the throughout the period. Um, so you've got both going on. You've got people riding on horseback and you've also got people riding in carriages and the motivations for those people are slightly different. And then you've also got hundreds and hundreds by the end of the 18th century of spectators gawping at the horses and gawping at the riders in their finery
0: and riding around. Um, you know, the way that you talk about it reminds me kind of how, how people today you know, how there's car nuts. Um, the, the people would spend a lot of time on getting exactly the right horse and would take care of them a lot, and and they would just live for showing them off.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there was a, a lot of symbolism involved in this. So you would imagine that carriages are painted with, you know, heraldic shields um the livery um you know the uniforms of your servants you know gives away who you are from 100 meters away people <laughs> can can tell which duke is coming towards them um people would emulate one another yeah even down to um the aristocracy the aristocracy would choose a particular style of saddle or bridle and then that would be copied by other um wealthy londoners um so so yeah it's the it is the place to be seen I mean it's it's you got to imagine as well you're you're lifted up in the air on your on your horse or in your carriage it's the most impressive dazzling way to be seen in in London Uh, and people used all kinds of tricks on their horses uh, in the in the name of sociability so you know you could uh, if you weren't in favor with an aristocrat they would um, you know either order their coachman um, to, to quickly steer away from you um, or they would sort of invite conversation by slowing and stuff so there's you know, some pretty brutal um, social tricks going on um, in, in, in Hyde Park but it's important to emphasize at the same time while while horses enable sociability um, they're also and sort of an alluring pastime in themselves to the extent that for those who were beginning to get a bit tired of other people's companies, you know, we've all been in those dinner parties that don't go as you hoped. Um, and and sometimes you want a, an escape from the kind of stifling sociability, um, either through work or, or through your social life. Um, and animals, horses uh, in particular, provided an escape from that uh, and not just for... Elite Londoners, but also going a little bit further down into this kind of middling and, and mercantile classes as well. Um, I mean, one of my favourite bits of the research was, um, I think it's fair to say, discovering uh, discovering this uh, mercantile culture of riding out. So the, these these guys are absolutely crucial to Georgian London. You know, they're really pushing the. The, the the prosperity of the city. They're the they're the, the merchants arranging trade overseas, they're the insurance brokers, um and and they are um working really hard in these kind of stifling offices um stuck at their desks a lot of the time having stressful negotiations all day long with uncooperative people trying to fleece them. And then, you know, they're looking at their watch and as soon as they get the opportunity, they're out of there and they're running to the stables in the City of London and they're jumping on their horse and they're riding out to these suburbs, which were then these sort of beautiful, green, picturesque places uh, and they're now some of the kind of grottier parts of London. So sometimes it's a bit hard to imagine riding to Tottenham to go and see the meadows and the streams and stuff. But that's what these guys were were doing.
0: I mean, this this is so, this is so striking. I think I think that historians, like we 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 really we don't focus on pleasure a lot. And when we do focus on pleasure, it's really kind of the cerebral, like linguistic pleasures that we, as a class, tend to. Uh, enjoy ourselves, but it's, it's, it's so remarkable to think in the 18th century, which is a period of time that I just study as like a a world of talk that a ton of people turned their backs on talk to go out and, and ride with animals and and enjoy the presence of animals and enjoy like what we'd call nature. Um,
1: I, (laughs) I, I sort of visualize, you can imagine these people who just, as you say, spend all their time, you know trying to climb climb up socially and 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 sort of having these kind of passive aggressive polite conversations a lot of the time or or negotiating in difficult circumstances and then they get this opportunity to literally physically lift themselves up on a horse which in the 18th century um was appreciated by doctors but also by you know philosophers and, and others and that this was a healthy thing to do to get an unfettered perspective over things just you know just like we know about today you know climbing up uh, mountains to get that view makes you feel better um uh, but also they you know I, I mean I have to say equestrians in this period are pretty sparing particularly men they're pretty sparing in their diaries about their experiences so they they don't unfortunately tell you very often you know i had a a lovely time with my horse we discussed this and i love my horse so much (laughs) They, they tell you what the weather was and how far they rode and how fast and whether they met someone and you know which landscape they went through um There is one exception, an amazing diary by a guy called Silas Neville, who's a very unconventional um, chap. Uh, He was a, a bachelor, not particularly wealthy, but trying to make it big in the world. And you mentioned earlier about people spending a long time trying to choose the perfect horse. And he did just that. And it was... an. Uh, An experience full of anguish for him. Buying a horse in Georgian London was pretty perilous. You were there to be tricked at every turn. But he managed to find his dream horse called Pissarro, a bay horse. And he loved this horse so much. Um, And he describes that when he loses all his money and falls into debt, that he had to sell this horse and he admits in his diary to crying all the way over the neck of his horse as he's riding it for the last time. And he says that he'll never buy a horse again because he'll never find one as perfect as Pissarro again. And it's just a little, I mean, perhaps not everyone was, was like Silas quite as emotional with horses, but, um, there's, there's no reason to think that they weren't i don 't think there, there might have been a bit more kind of uh, reserved English stip upper a lip going on, but um people were incredibly affectionate with their horses um, the um Earl Spencer is said to have um, when his um, hunting horse died during a hunt, he's said to have had the horse buried immediately on the spot with his very expensive mm-hmm. saddle and bridle as a as a mark of respect um so I think people were incredibly passionate about horses, um, albeit at a time when other horses are being worked to death. It's a it's a really complex picture, I think.
0: Yeah. Great. Well, well thank you very much for for joining me today, Tom. Um everybody should get the book as you can if you if you can't tell, it is chock full of, <laughs> of 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 great human and animal interest. Uh wonderfully written. If you're not an mm-hmm. academic, it actually is written well. So don't, don't be scared. Um, get it, city of uh, city of beasts, um, from Manchester university press. Thank you very much again, Tom. Thank you to Duncan Barton who did our image and Jonathan Lear, uh, who did our music. If you like the show rate and review us on iTunes or do all those things that you do with things that you like on the internet, um, especially share it with your in-laws. If you have in-laws, uh, in-laws always seem to like the show. Um, for some reason and if you are an in-law who's been uh, told about the show uh contact me um you can get uh show notes at historian.live and uh f- do all those yeah follow us thank you very much